Last night, many of us gathered here in this space to remember Jesus' final night with his friends, Monday, Thursday, the Last Supper. And while we were together, we talked a lot about memory, the things we remember, those memories we want to keep, and those memories that if we could, we'd get rid of. Part of our memories, what makes them uh, such is our ability to have things memorized. Think, for instance, of a beloved story you like to tell, or even one you like to hear. Or better yet, think of your favorite song. Or your favorite movie? Can you remember the words? Can you repeat them out loud like you're the singer or you're the actor? We memorize things that are valuable and important to us. We internalize particular words and phrases from those whom we love and we cherish the memories they become. I have memorized many anecdotes from my family. Uh, If you've been here at all over the last... Nine or ten months that I've been a pastor, you know that I love to tell stories. I love telling stories. And I have all these stories memorized about my family. And that, one of my grandmothers in particular, her name is Sylvia Reigns Pickery, born and raised in Petersburg, Virginia. My favorite story about my grandmother, my absolute favorite, that years ago she came over to my parents' house and we, we had dinner together. We had this great time, and the end of the evening was coming. It was time for Brandon uh, to go home. And so she started looking for her keys. Have you all ever experienced this before? Yes. Someone you love, someone you love, someone in your family, it's time for them to go and they can't find the keys anywhere. So we looked in the pockets of her jacket and weren't there. Then we got her purse. We tried to rifle through it. You know, 15 minutes later, we're dumping every content out from her purse, wondering why she has sand in her purse. <laughs> We went through every little item in that purse that we could possibly... So it's, it's not there. So then we start to be irrational. We go look in the trash. Have you, I, I hope no one here has ever had to go looking for their keys in the trash. But we did. We looked through the trash. We cut that sucker open. We were filtering through, and sure, no keys. So then we got even more irrational. We went upstairs. Grand might even be close to the staircase. But sure enough, we went upstairs. We looked at my parents' bedroom, my sister's bedroom, the bathroom. We looked everywhere. Everywhere, and the keys could not be found. So I decided I'm going to drive my grandmother home. I'm going to drive her home because I have an extra set of keys to her house. I will drive her home, I'll get her in, and we'll make a copy of the key. We'll figure something out tomorrow, but it was getting so late, we were covered in trash. It was time for Grand to go home. Fifteen minutes later, after dropping her off and getting home, relieved that we don't have to look for the keys anymore, the phone starts to ring. You know where this is going. <laughs> so I answer the phone. I say, Sylvia, I didn't even look at the caller ID. I knew it was her. I said, Sylvia Reeves, what is it? Did you find the key? She said, child, precious lamb. She calls me precious lamb. Precious lamb, I came home, and I got ready for bed, and would you believe it, I found the keys. I said, Grant, where in the world were the keys? She said, child, they were in my bosom. <laughs> Reasons I do not want to know. She took those keys and she hid them in her bosom, where only literally one person would find them. It, it seems it's that kind of story that I'm talking about. One that you just, it's so true and so good. A story that can make people laugh, or other stories that can make people cry, where you, you have it so memorized, you could tell it again and again and again, and it just gets better and better and better. That's the kind of memory I'm talking about. 
Something that's so deeply seated in you that if you were called to do it at a moment's notice, you could stand up and you could tell the story. And I could stand up here. I could tell you stories about that one grandmother all night. And you all could come back tomorrow and I'd tell you even more. And on Saturday or Sunday and just on and I have so many stories. And during the time of Jesus' life, they memorized things too. They memorized stories just like we do. Just like when we get together at a table and we start to talk and tell stories, the same thing was happening during the time of Jesus. But there was a level of memory present during the time of Jesus that is all but lost today. Jesus and his friends, they memorized Scripture. And when I say they memorized Scripture, I don't mean that they could open up their Bibles and tell you where Ezra was and how many pages to flip to get to Nehemiah or anything like that. No, they had them memorized. As a young Jew in the first century, Jesus, like many others, would pray the Psalms out loud. All of them. Number 1 to 150 every week. The Psalms were the spoken word of the people. They were on the hearts and the minds and the lips all day long. Praying through them was as natural to them as watching bad sitcoms are to us. It's what they talked about all the time. It was part of their identity. All of the Psalms. Such that when Jesus was nailed to a cross, murdered in front of the eyes of everyone in Jerusalem, these were his final words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is difficult and challenging to contemplate our Lord saying these words from the cross. We might be a little more comfortable with the way that John tells the story. Because when John tells the story, Jesus' final words are, it is finished. Or Luke's version. In Luke's version, Jesus' final words are, into thy hands I commit my spirit. But no, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When I need to offer a hopeful word to a grieving family, perhaps a family preparing for a funeral, I often turn to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, that beloved collection of verses that many of us have memorized. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's comforting. So again and again, I will say to families, let's read the 23rd Psalm. But in my career, in my life, rarely, if ever, have I told someone to read the Psalm right before. Psalm 22. It's hard to read that Psalm because the very first line is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We read those words and we're immediately pulled to the cross, to the torment and to the agony of Jesus yelling into the void moments before he dies. There's no doubt about it, Jesus suffers. It is a suffering that is disconnected and disconnecting. In suffering on the cross, he was made completely alone. You know, loneliness is a strange and weird thing. When I try to imagine what loneliness is like, I think about this woman one time, I went to a nursing home to visit someone. Uh, and the person I was going to visit, uh, she had company. And I was getting ready to leave, and I saw a woman sitting by herself, sort of on a bench in the hallway. And I sat down, and I just said, hey, I'm Taylor, how are you? And we started talking back and forth, and we talked for no more than 10 or 15 minutes. And I said, well, I have to get back to church. It was very nice to meet you. And she grabbed me by the wrist, 
She said, hey, thanks for talking to me. You're the first person to really talk to me in six months. Think about that if you can. Not talking to somebody, really talking to somebody in six months. That's loneliness. That's loneliness. Or when I think about loneliness, I think about a grandmother in California who lost her grandson last weekend. He was talking on a cell phone in the backyard, and he was shot 20 times. The grandmother who lost her grandson, who lost her precious lamb. I think about her loneliness now. Even rather self-righteously, today, I, as I've done the last five years, I take this cross. I throw it over my shoulder on Good Friday, and I leave from the church. I did it for four years in Stan, and I did it today. I got the cross, I walked through our parking lot down to Route 1, and I started going up and down and up and down. And for the first 30 minutes, it was like I was invisible. No one talked to me. When I tried to look at people as they were walking down the sidewalk or driving, they ignored my glance. That's the kind of loneliness I think about. But even those stories, the woman in the nursing home, the grandmother in California, and even me, that is nothing compared to the loneliness Jesus felt on the cross because he was alone while surrounded by people, abandoned by his closest friends and disciples, and even abandoned by God. It's on the cross that we experience this thing we call the cry of dereliction. In this one moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see Jesus' full humanity. We experience this abyss of fear, and we see how rejected he was. And yet for some reason, in this final moment of his life, Jesus turned to prayer. Not a last sermon on a faithful life. Not a reaching out with his hand for divine healing. His last words are a prayer. Prayer corresponds with our experience. It's the way we process the moment we are in. It's what enables us to scale those impossible mountains of torment that threaten to close us off from everything we've known. Prayer is what enables us to see the truth in terms of what has come before and what will Come ahead. Of all the things we do as disciples, worshiping a God on a cross is probably the weirdest. And it's something we can only do through prayer. It's also why tonight's worship service is almost always the least attended worship service in the year. We don't want to get too close to death. And yet we glorify the Son of God nailed to the wood. We worship a God who died in such a way that he would be ignored even though he was high for everyone to see. This story, this story of Jesus on the cross, it is a story that is realer than real. You cannot spiritualize it away. It can't be fully comprehended by people like us. The climax of the gospel takes place right here in a shocking and violent and tangible way such that even here, 2,000 years later, we'll st we're still worshiping this man who died for all to see. Our worship is a paradox. It's a paradox as difficult as Jesus' final words, because we believe that the generosity of God means the crucifixion of the Son. 
In him, both the godly and the ungodly are justified. According to the strange and mysterious wisdom of God, it is through the cross that all of the cosmos is altered forever. It's this death that makes our life possible. It's this death, this cross, that makes everything we do intelligible. This death is at the heart of who God really is. If you're anything like me, you want to jump straight to Easter. Enough with this cross and crucifixion and hammer and nail stuff. Give me the lilies. Give me the bunnies. Give me the eggs. You want to jump straight to Easter. But you cannot have crucifixion without resurrection. And you cannot have resurrection without crucifixion. They have to be together. And we cannot ignore what Jesus said before he died. We cannot imagine it away or explain it away. This moment of crying out in fear. But of course, that's not where the psalm ends. We might read that first line, My God, my God, how have you forsaken me? But it continues. It continues, and it has what I think is the most important yet in all of Scripture. Oh my God, I cry by day, and you do not answer. I cry by night, and I find no rest. Yet, you are holy. Yet you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. Yet in you, our ancestors trusted, and you delivered them. On that yet, in Psalm 22, hangs both the Old and the New Testaments. In that yet, we confront the true and strange paradox of the crucifixion. That Jesus is both elected and rejected. That he knows sorrow and he knows hope. That he dies and will rise again. Jesus knew the power of yet. But we, we must wait for Easter. We have to take the time to sit in the terrible shadow of the cross. To see in this first century man all the fullness of God. We have to recognize in him all of our sin. Good Friday, unlike just about anything else we do as a church, cannot be tied up neatly in a bow. We can't press fast forward to Sunday morning. We have to be like the disciples. We have to look at the cross from the distance at our friend and Lord who died. We have to be patient and wait for God to do a new thing. We have to recognize that this is something God did for us and not the other way around. I promise that tonight we will leave under the cover of darkness. And yet, Jesus is the light of the world. The words of our prayers and the hymns, they eventually will fall silent. And yet, God cannot be silenced. The shadow of death will feel darker than ever. And yet, and yet, Sunday will come. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen.